Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 102. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. On today's show, we're talking with Scott Frank. Scott left his position as Director of Media Relations at the AIA shortly after the controversial announcement was made in response to the election of Donald Trump. As you'll soon find out in our discussion, he had nothing to do with that. He now runs Argo Communications, a full-service consulting firm working for professionals in all aspects of the design and building industry. Our conversation provides a behind-the-scenes peek into the AIA letter, which led to the Not My AIA campaign. We also talk about strategies for architects to effectively promote themselves. So I'm excited, especially that Scott is here today, because he and I have been communicating by email for several years now. And I still remember my very first interaction with you, Scott, over AIA email when you were asking about people locally who did any kind of writing in newspapers or op-eds or anything like that, that you were trying to gather examples of architects being locally very good at communicating and and trying to tell our story out in the world. And your response email to me was just hilarious and, and funny. And you were really impressed that we have one guy who's kind of a local crank who writes a lot of things. Um, And you were laughing about that. You and I have had some really good interactions over the years, and I'm really happy that you're on the podcast finally. As am I. This is great. I'm excited. So thank you for having me on board. Welcome. So give us a little background about yourself. And uh, uh, as Paul said in the intro, we um, know that you used to work for AIA and now you have your own communications firm. So tell us a little about your whole story. Certainly. So I got to AIA purely by happenstance. I had worked in the late 90s in radio. I was a, I was a radio DJ. I thought that was going to be my path. I wanted to be a program director of a rock radio station. Then quickly, well, not quickly, I spent three years doing that. It, it occurred to me that moving up through the ranks, bouncing around to city to city to bigger markets, didn't really equate to something that might make it for a good lifestyle. And this was before satellite radio and Pandora and streaming services kind of put FM radio in almost in a coffin. I got a chance to move in with some great college friends in D.C. I'd been living in rural Maryland, which is not what I was accustomed to or where I grew up. So I jumped at the chance to live in a city with some good friends of mine and figured, okay, I'll get a real job. I don't know what that's going to be. <laughs> well, you know, when, you, when you work in small market radio, you have to write copy. You have to do voiceover production of commercials. So that's kind of what I, geez, still, I would love to do that. That would be fun. But DC, not really a hotbed for that sort of thing. So through a placement service, I ended up interviewing at a PR firm that was specializing in technology companies. This was right at like 2000, year 2000. And so I got a job there and I just sort of made it up as I went along, just trying to get exposure for the startups and the B2B technology clients that we had. And I wasn't even there a full year, but I I guess I caught the attention of a guy who had been recruited to work for Ogilvy Public Relations Worldwide, which is a huge juggernaut, part of a publicly traded um, entity. And he recruited me to Ogilvy. And through my surprise, I got a job there as an account supervisor, which is which is pretty cool. Not exactly highly paid, but but not not entry level or sort of admin as a lot of you know start start starting point jobs in PR firms are. And it was okay. I mean, I didn't really know what I was doing. I was sort of holding my breath, like at what point are they going to say, okay, this guy's kind of a fraud, <laughs> <laughs> imposter syndrome, <laughs> right? Yeah, and so. You know, I got some advice. I just, I kept my eyes and ears open. I thought, ask a lot of questions. You know, let's not pretend I'm some technology whiz. Because this wasn't like fun, cool gadgets or video games. This was wonkish back office systems that are very important to make things run and operate. But they're not 
in popular mechanics or, you know, cool met wired or anything like that. So let's just move real quickly past that. I, I did that for a couple of years. I went to another technology firm in-house. They were going through growing pains. I didn't last a full year there until they had a reduction in force. So I was happily laid off because that place made a, a Dilbert cartoon look semi-functional. <laughs> so there it was laid off. I was got to have been 33 years old, give or take. And I didn't do a whole lot. I, you know, I went a few job interviews. I was like, I've got to get away from technology PR. I just have to. And so sent my resume to the same placement staffing firm that I'd used initially. And I swear to God, that afternoon, a woman called and said, okay, your resume looks great. There's an opportunity to fill in for the director of media relations for the American Institute of Architects. She's going on maternity leave for three months and blah, blah, blah. And I said, architects? Well, that's awesome. I mean, you know, I have no background, but I know that I like cool buildings and I know that I hate ugly ones. And I have an appreciation for that sort of thing. And just oddly enough, my father was an urban planner and ended up running at, late in his career as a pretty high profile civil engineering firm in the Northern Virginia area. So I was like, okay, full speed ahead. By all means, please, I'd love to get that job. So I interviewed, got a job filled in there while she was on maternity leave. And and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the subject matter. And so when that woman came back, I went and worked at Nextel as a consultant, well, consultant, just as a contractor, a freelancer doing media stuff for them. And then AI called and said that the woman I had replaced, she and her husband decided to move to Florida. Would you like to come back? And I was like, absolutely. And so that was, I want to say 2004. And so I was there, I guess, 13 odd years and uh, most of them very good. You know, there was this sort of eye rolling frustrations that, that anyone has at any job, particularly an organization like, you know, a nonprofit association. So for the most part, I was able to just, you know, water off a duck's back, yeah, groan. You know, my, my former boss who hired me, he was on the receiving end of a few of my profane rants. And I thanked him for that when I left. I said, you know what? I, <laughs> if, if I had been you, I would have punched me in my fucking mouth for talking to you. <laughs> So we will eventually get to the infamous Robert Ivey letter congratulating President Trump. I think that's the first time I've said those two words out loud. Together. <laughs> and the last. And the last. But do you recall any like any sort of hot stories from prior to that, like in your first couple of years where there was some kind of misstep or where some someone communicated really poorly or really well in the AIA that you, you know, thought that, that that's a good example or a bad example? There was nothing close to that sort of misstep. Okay. <laughs> that was stepping on, the, on a nuclear warhead. <laughs> no, the things that drove me crazy about the Institute extend to the profession at large as much as I like and respect it. So there was a study by Georgetown University that came out and said the top 10 majors, you, you parents don't let their children grow oh, up right. to be architects. Oh my God. Yep. They yep. reacted as though, you know, it was an all out assault on the profession. <laughs> Everyone absolutely shit their pants. And what are we going to do? We need to respond to this. We must respond to this. Well, okay, well, what does that actually mean? Because I, as a, as a storyteller, want to push out positive news about the Institute and about the profession. I also know where all the bodies are buried. So if you want to get into a tit for tat, then somebody through a cursory Google search might say, so let me get this straight. You spend how many years in school? How many years being a poorly paid intern or associate or whatever? And then your average salary is seventy three fucking thousand dollars. <laughs> really? 
And you're going to sit here and tell me how dare we suggest, you know, in a down economy when the construction industry is off a cliff? Really? So that's the kind of thing that drove me crazy because these people were so tone deaf and they just can't see the forest for the trees. But that's endemic in a in a single subject sort of organization. But I would try as best I could to steer them away from that sort of nonsense. So I don't want to monopolize all of this, but um, but for the most part, I enjoyed it. And there was great storytelling examples and countless examples of what the, the work that myself and Matt Tinder, my my main running mate, all we try to do is in addition to announcing our awards or positions or architecture billings index stuff, what we really wanted to do is position architects as problem solvers. And so I'm really proud of the work that we did doing that. And so there were tremendous examples, too many to name at this time. So. So, Scott, what strikes me so far about your background and of knowing about uh, Ivy's background is that he comes from a slow media and you come from a really a pretty rapid response media. Is there an inherent conflict between those two types of media uh, kind of type or those two types of figures? I mean, he's really slow. It's text. It's, you know, once a month publication. If you're on the radio, you're kind of, you know, you can have a response immediately. Yeah, sure. There's there's differences, but the, the fundamentals in the building blocks are the same. And so, you know, again, when I was in radio, I wasn't in news or anything. I was like playing classic and, and alternative rock stuff. But so let me shift to the, the immediacy of what Matt and I did at the AIA was pretty rapid fire. I mean, we're not doing press releases every day, but but close. I'm sure we averaged one, which is not good. That's just that's just a bit information overload. But but what we did was we fielded all kinds of media inquiries. It could be from trade pubs, it could be from a blog in who knows where, it could be Wall Street Journal and, and everything in between. What we had to do is the same thing that you would hope that a monthly magazine would do is practice just good fundamentals, tell good stories, pivot and try to position things as best you can when you get challenged. I would never offer the no comment sort of thing because you're just guilty as charged as far as I'm concerned. And so we were under some pressure to crank out high profile exposure for the Institute and the profession all, all the time. And it was, it was a, what have you done for me lately sort of thing. But it was fun, you know, because we, we, at least we had enough inventory. And whenever we didn't, then I would just, you know, go sort of like an archaeologist sifting through the, I start walking around and trying to draw news out of people that I knew was there, but they just didn't, it's not in, in someone who works in AI knowledge communities, it's not really in their mindset to think that, oh, we need, this is newsworthy because they're just trying to crank through their stuff and make their member committees happy and all that stuff. But I'm like, wait a second, you're doing what with healthcare? Hang on a second. Let's have it. Let's have a discussion and see if, if we might be able to help get some exposure for that. And they're like all ears. They're like, that was great. So I can't really speak to ever. You know, I've never worked for a magazine. I've written freelance stuff for folks like that. But to put together something as massive as as an architectural record monthly magazine, it's, a, it's an undertaking I, I have great appreciation for. And I'm glad I never worked in that world. Did you have any role? We had Bob Ivey on, I would say, pretty early on our uh, podcast when they were talking about releasing the I Look Up campaign. And we had him on. Were you, were you did you have any connection to that? And generally, what I was pretty critical of is, you know, when these high upper echelon kind of individuals kind of start using buzzwords as though like you know, like they, uh, like they invented social media, basically. He was priming us with this, you know, this social media campaign, social media. We just could never get him to really important about the I Look Up campaign. Let me just be very clear. No, I didn't have a goddamn thing to do with it. 
because I wasn't allowed to. There was a woman hired to then become my supervisor. I had had the same managing director who was promoted as who was my direct supervisor for, gosh, I, I would say a, 10 years. And then they created this new managing director position for this public awareness campaign, as they called it. And of course, I, I wanted that job and was told, thanks, but no thanks. They brought this woman on. She didn't know what she was doing. She tried. But as you can see, the evidence speaks for the, themselves. And and Robert is just sort of spitting out what he was told. Yeah. And oh, we're going to we're going to we're going to activate on social media. We're going to we're going to engage and all this sort of stuff. Like you say, the, the buzzwords. I could practically we could we could get a bingo card, and I bet I could get half of them off the top oh, of my yeah. head. <laughs> but the campaign itself is so wasteful because yeah. they don't have enough money to justify television commercials. No the television commercial went nothing. Look up. Look what I did. I'm great. Yeah. Aren't I great? Come on, I'm great. Brought to you by the American Bye. That's yeah. That's what it was. There was, there was no call to action whatsoever it was just i'm great you should know it come on admit it i'm great let's go have a drink i mean that's it and real quick i want to make a point because ken brought up something that is that is critical and it shows the lack of strategic thinking and just how wasteful especially that first iteration i think i think it's gotten better but but they have no business advertising on television i'll say that with a straight face i've said it to them before as far as i'm concerned it's a vanity exercise for the board of directors to say that we we were on meet the press we were on during the debates (laughs) Well, that's great. But if you don't have enough money to do it with enough frequency, like real brands that actually advertise on television, then you're absolutely flushing your members' money down the toilet. And that's yep. the truth. But so, Ken, to the point where you said it was on the Masters, it was on two golf tournaments, not the Masters, just rank and file, like, I don't know, the Phoenix Open or, or whatever it was. And so listen to me. This is crucial. It was one commercial during a five, six-hour golf match, and then it was one commercial the following week. And each of those costs combined was around $300,000. Okay. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so that happened. So when the asinine membership who wants to sit there and, and bitch and, and have a have a, have a conniption fit about like, oh, how much did Michelle Obama cost? We stuck a commercial on a second tier over a five, six hour period. And we sat one- Light some cigars with $100 bills on stage at convention is uh, basically what that's doing. <laughs> So how did you during that I look up campaign process, did you have ideas or suggestions for how it should have been presented? Oh, of course I did. We had a PR firm that was on retainer who was separate to the creative agency that did the the advertising portion of it. Oh, plenty of people, not just me. Plenty of people had ideas. Plenty of people said that this was off track. It was, you know, it was really, it was rushed through, right? So they had this mandate that they said, I guess it was a, it was a three-year PR campaign. And then they said, no, no, it's a multi-year. Stop saying it's three-year, you know, all this rigmarole with uh, parsing the language. But it was, it was not well thought out whatsoever. And essentially one person was allowed to orchestrate all of this and decide that, oh, we should be in front of golf people. Well, then spend all your money on golf tournaments. You know, you've got to be somewhere where you have enough frequency to be seen and get your message mm-hmm. repeated. And mm-hmm. by the way, there was no message, uh, no call to action anyway. So it was very frustrating and embarrassing. And I'm, and I'm glad to, <laughs> I wasn't going to bring this up whatsoever, but I'm glad, Ken, that you <laughs> asked if I was part of that. Because no, I certainly, I haven't been part of any decision making in the any of the I Look Up campaigns, social media, paid media or otherwise. Okay. One of the things I'm, I'm curious about, because, uh, and we talked a little bit about some of the, the lack of understanding or even listening from the leadership 
towards the membership and what the membership is actually doing. And with regards, you know, so we're at the convention, right? And any black architect in the profession, in the institute, anyone, and a millennial, who anyone who's even critically engaged would, would have said, you know, asking Michelle Obama, an attorney, a black attorney, how can we make our profession more inclusive and add more black members it was such a tone deaf and stupid question. Is the leadership taking that very seriously about how to, they have three tenths, you know, they have, I think 3% of the membership is African-American, three tenths of a percent of our members are black women. And they're asking a black first lady lawyer to be the magical Negro to solve this problem for us. And almost word for word, the exact same answer I got from a young black architect I met out in, um, when we were going to watch her speak. Are they concerned about that, really? Or is it just paying lip service to the moment? And let, let me add to that, not just in terms of black architects, which we know is a, a problem with the profession, but um, in terms of listening to younger professionals and non traditional type practitioners as well. Like what kind, how have you seen the AIA engage with those issues over the years while you were there? You know, look, they, they absolutely would love to make the profession more diverse and inclusive. They, they absolutely want to do that. that. That is not lip service as far as I'm concerned. Good. They lack an understanding of how to do that. Frankly, I couldn't sit here and write you a memo on how to do that. I could I could write you a memo on how to fix a lot of things in that place. That's not one of them. It's very challenging. There's market controls that, that they don't want to do. What bothers me about them is, what was it, two years ago they released the findings or they developed this insanely long and complicated survey and then they sat on it and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. They finally released the findings and the way they messaged it, it was like, Okay, you guys, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> I think we're not very diverse. <laughs> and so I also know that they did this exact same song and dance in 2005 and nothing came out of it. So mm. so I'll leave it to you guys and the people listening whether or not it's lip service. I don't think it is. They have a, they have a department that's dedicated to that, but I I just don't think they know a good path forward to do things. For example, they finally are just starting a K through 12 program. Well, that's right. 10, if not 20 years too late. So the real place to affect change is at the chapter level. They've been doing K through 12 programs. They have their own foundations that can get in front of STEM groups, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, you know, that kind of stuff. That is happening. And that's been happening for a long time. At the national level, I'm not sure it's even their role. What they probably should do is just put money together so that the Equity and Inclusion Committee or whatever it's called can actually go and give grants to groups like the Washington Architecture Foundation and folks that are doing things around the country and say, I know you guys have been doing this. Here's money to do more. You know, maybe that's their role. So let's go ahead and talk about the the letter, the infamous letter. Let's do that. And then we can talk a little more generally about architects, because you have a lot, Scott, of experience and knowledge about architects in general, not just related to the AA. So let's let's go ahead and get the get the letter out of the way. Get it out of the way. <laughs> you mentioned that you listened to the podcast we had right after that um, Robert Ivey's letter came out, that Catherine Darnstadt was a our guest and she instigated the, which may not be the right word, the not my AA hashtag. So give us some background on what you were seeing happening during that whole debacle. I'll take you a step further. It was a debacle. I mean, it was, a, it was an utter and complete meltdown, you know, and the reaction, the problem with not just AIA, I would have to think if any organization that's a, that's a nonprofit member-driven association, if anybody, whether they're doctors, lawyers, 
you know, shoemakers. It doesn't matter. I think they would, their brains just short circuited and they lost all perspective. And so from my personal vantage point, that hashtag was born, I believe, and the Friday evening after the Architects newspaper absolutely submarined that preposterous statement. And so overnight, you know, you've got Twitter on fire and Facebook maybe to a lesser degree and, and so forth. So I literally wake up and a colleague had sent the Architects newspaper editorial to me and a couple others in our communications team. <laughs> I mean, I wish I was a cartoon. Like, boing, 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 my eyes would have <laughs> shot right out of my head, like I was the roadrunner or something. And then I saw that this hashtag had been born. And so then I'm scrolling through Twitter and then I'm like, okay, well, let's watch this episode. And so I flip open my laptop and sure enough, the reply to all stream is, is fast and furious for members of the advocacy team that put out the statement, communication folks, board of directors, and they have all lost their mind. And I just, I didn't say a word because I didn't want to usurp commands, so to speak, but uh, I, I made my feelings known that the path that they were taking was really dangerous and very tone deaf. And I, I, I pleaded tooth and nail through, throughout that Saturday afternoon. I'm not going to mention anybody's names or their positions, but I did, I did my best. My colleagues, uh, counterpart in the department, we tried and you know, it was just a losing battle. You know, we were ignored left, right and center. And they enlisted an, another outside voice, a consultant to draft this language. And I mean, it was horrifying. And so late in the day, the one thing they did listen to is I said, please don't put that statement on our website and on our social media. And they did listen to that. And they said, OK, but we want to send it to the Architects newspaper as a letter to the editor. <laughs> I what? said, what? You got it. If that's if that's what you want to do, then fine. That, I mean, you know, again, I, I work for these people. I was I was paid well. I you know, I, so I, you know, I, I'll go good soldier on this. Obviously, they're not listening to me. So I had plans, dinner plans with my with my now wife and my parents. And so I had to hustle this out. And I emailed Bill Making at Architects Newspaper, who I, I swear I'd only ever emailed once or twice before because, you know, they don't cover AI stuff. They cover fabulous projects. They cover the ABI once in a while and design awards. So it's not like somebody that we interact with often. I emailed him and said, hey, man, sorry to hit you here late Saturday night, but uh, our, our CEO and president wanted to reply. And I swear, two minutes later, he goes, <laughs> he goes, listen, I'm sorry for you for whatever this must be doing for you. And he goes, I've known Bob a long time. Bob's a good guy, but this is not OK. And we'll, we'll print your, we'll print your, you know, remarks. And I was like, and I know what's going to happen next. <laughs> and by the time I finished dinner, I checked and, oh, the boomerang came fast and furious with the response to the second response or the first response. And then, you know, cut to two days later and they're filming the video. <laughs> it was, it was, it was an outright fiasco. And so as the week progressed, it was increasingly obvious to me that my opinion didn't matter. So, Scott, who was it that wrote the letter? What was the process that this letter was drafted up and released? I mean, who was involved in that in that decision making? The way those things always work, it's a, a mostly driven by the advocacy department and uh, the person that handles communication specifically for advocacy. Fortunately, that was not me. So that's how it goes. And then it gets just thrown up the food chain for tweaking edits and then to, to Robert's desk. And then, you know, Robert's an editor himself. He might have made any tweaks. I don't know that the statement was issued by the time I got to work, hungover, depressed and just distraught that the Trump right, had actually exactly. won the, the election. And exactly. so here they are hustling this thing out like like they're getting a permit up to, to start working on something. And I didn't read the statement until Friday of that week when one of the, the true star sort of, you know, chapter executives 
Kathleen Lane in Baltimore, who used to work on AI National Staff, she emailed me and said, hey, I know you didn't put this out, but I've got three members threatening to resign just this afternoon alone. So red alert. And I was like, uh, again, with the eyeballs. And so I, I actually read the statement and I almost fainted. Like this language. And I, you know what, guys, I don't really want to dissect it from a forensic standpoint. Everybody's done all of that. So it, the, the process was the, the same process always is. What This wasn't a rogue mission. This wasn't slipping one by the goalie. They just did it. The, the biggest thing that that I think membership and architects in general should should take away from from that episode is not the poorly worded statement because it was not an endorsement. It just sounded like one. It was a sort of pro forma. We're an association. We think we're hot shit and we should weigh in on an election. That was, by the way, the most divisive election since the 1800s. So might you just calm your shit and let us collect our breath and then issue something, maybe when there's something to react to, like an infrastructure spending plan or right. what have you. So, Scott, that that's actually kind of what happened was we started pulling together information from the previous. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, so you saw that. And and then there were specific policies about where the AIA said they were looking forward to working with President Obama on. And then here's this one thing, we're going to be backing you with our 85,000 members. So that's where I think people were like, wait, first it wasn't, it didn't seem too thought out. And it was almost like we were looking forward to working with you on these specific. It didn't have any of that where it was like, wait, he just said he wants to build a fucking wall to separate us from. Well, okay. You know what I said about forensics? I'm going to go back. I don't have the statement in front of me, but I remember a couple of words that were just, they were so cringeworthy that I, I would say they're comical, except they're, they're just not funny. They said the following in, in whatever order, we stand ready. Yes, to rebuild yeah, the nation's it. infrastructure. Okay, wait a minute. Are, are you now the fucking Avengers or something? <laughs> what do you mean you stand ready? And by the way, that is the purview for the most part of the engineer. And by the way, the guy you're talking to is well known for not paying the people that you represent. <laughs> exactly. But wait, exactly. there's more. This is like a bad infomercial, but wait, there's one more. They said that we are committed to working with the administration. Let me tell you something. AI doesn't work with the administration. They work with FEMA here and there. They work with HUD here and there. They don't work with the, the White House. You know, they might get invited to a yeah. summit on resilience here or there, maybe have a speaker, maybe not. But to say, to, to insinuate that we're at the table, they're like, all right, we got, we got commerce, we got finance, we got, you know, <laughs> interiors. Oh, good. We got AIA. All right. Maybe, maybe you can commence. <laughs> and yet, sorry, that just reminds me that, you know, we had Blair Kamen on the podcast before Trump was elected. And he pointed out that when Trump came to Chicago for something and came to the Tribune, he basically walked into the conference room with all these reporters there ready to talk about the tower, the whatever, what his presidential hopes, et cetera. And his first comment was, "Where bring me Blair Kamen. Where's Blair Kamen? Because Blair had written a bad review of his building. Like, that's, you know, that's the, uh, for, for Trump, apparently, architects are important and our opinions are important, except that he doesn't pay us for our actual work. <laughs> Scott, do you think that there was some kind of political message behind that statement? No. No? Not a bit. No, I, I have to say, fair is fair. Not a bit. I know the people that wrote it. I know that they're, well, at least one of them is on the blue team. So that person lost their motherfucking mind to, to, put, to put out such language. No, I want to I want to say that clearly. There was no, oh, this will be good for us, AI, this will be good for architects. It was just really peacocking to say it, that we could rush this statement out, that we're at the table. We're going to work with the, we stand ready. It was all this garbage language. It was just really way out over your skis. And they had no business saying that language at that time about that topic. 
plain and simple. But there was no political motivation to that. I promise you that. Did you ever sense any kind of political bias while you were at the AIA? Never. And, it, and never. And it's not um, allowed, of course, I'm, I'm sure in the in the aftermath of their statement, of course, they're going to cite their governance laws. But at that point, you've already lost the discussion. Everybody thinks and everybody who is who is gay, who's female, who's a minority, just thinks you've embraced this abhorrent monster who's against everything that, you know, all of their you know livelihoods. And so if they're not listening to your governance. Well, we're is it bipartisan? We're nonpartisan or what, you know, whatever it is. But I promise you. They are not a corrupt organization when it comes to that. Not one bit. Also, they don't have the pack muscle to be a factor one way or the other in Capitol Hill for the red or the blue guys. Yeah, as we've pointed out before. So, Scott, I don't know if you have any um, experience with this, but I pointed out that recently, not too long ago, Reba, the Royal Institute of British Architects, put out responses to two different parties platforms they didn't you know put out something after an election was won they before an election happened put out these two responses saying this is how our organization representing architects feels about this party's platform and you know where we think we can work with them and what are good things and not versus this party's platform so has AIA ever done that kind of what really would be a nonpartisan sort of response to politics? Or are we really just so not at the table that it doesn't matter what we say? I mean, I guess that's my bigger question. Uh, I'm not I'm not the best person to answer this, but I will say that I know that in the, uh, this most recent election cycle, they did, you know, in either on the website or on the AI architect newsletter, they did like what each candidate's platforms means for architects. And so red guys, blue guys, they just gave a very objective overview on what, whether it's John Kasich or, you know, whomever, their sort of platform and what it meant for, for the profession and for you, the practitioner. So, so that's, you know, what they're supposed to do. I mean, I don't know that if I was a doctor, lawyer, architect, PR person, whatever, and if I paid money to my local organization, I, d- I don't know that I would look in their newsletter for guidance on who I'm going to vote for. But it's their job to at least present what it means. So so they did that. That's, that's what they should do. I, and I think at the local level, they may be a little more active. But again, I, I couldn't say for certain. I do know that the local chapters will convene a, a panel discussion with candidates. And so that way, they're not taking sides and they may or may not be moderating it. Maybe they're just sponsoring it. Maybe they're just, or maybe they have a panel discussion to talk about issues that deal with the built environment, you know, transportation, green space, that kind of stuff. That is what they should be doing at the chapters. And the, and the really good chapters do that already. And so, so, you know, at the national level, I just don't think they really have a role there. So you're basically saying, and I agree with this, we have my local chapter this January did a, a panel discussion with people from the city on um, infill housing and downtown housing density. And it was great and well attended by people who are not architects. But so you're basically saying, you think it would be more effective for AIA to give money to local chapters to do these things at a local level, the things that they're already doing well. Well, wait, wait, wait. not from a political standpoint. I, I don't know how that works. So frankly, I'm not comfortable talking about that whatsoever. What I was saying is that, though, I think that they could provide grants to do things to improve diversity issues in that way. Okay. From a political standpoint, I'm the wrong person. I don't even know if they're allowed to do that kind of thing. Okay. Scott, I can't recall how long you were around after this whole debacle went down, but did you get any insight into into what the AIA discussed regarding how to avoid 
doing this again? Like, were there discussions about what went wrong and, and how to avoid this from happening again? Because clearly it, it, they didn't intend for this message to come across the way it did. So if not my AI was born on Friday after the election, the subsequent week with all the, the missteps and all the bad press, I resigned the following Monday morning. Oh. So. So you weren't you weren't around for those uh, follow up conversations. I wasn't around. I'm sure they did. I've, I've, from what I understand, you know, I, I'm still in contact with a good many people on staff because I'm friendly with them, but I also respect them. There's a lot of good good working people. I mean, I've been sort of you know trashing the place here, obviously, but you know, there's plenty of people that are talented and do good work and mean well. But I still hear horror stories of ineptitude and just not thinking clearly or, or just one foot in front Wait. of the other type of stuff. So are you saying that they're they're missing the the small details. <laughs> imagine, imagine. Nice reference. I, from what I understand, they they now have a group like a they love the cross team cross team committees or something or whatever they're called in, in in the building. And I believe they have something called rapid response to address any issues that might be problematic. So I think they're trying to be a little more on top of things. But I mean, they're never going to face a firestorm this bad again. And if they do, please. <laughs> Put the pitchforks straight to Washington, D.C. And, and do a hostile takeover. Well, let me try to do that right now. Let me ask you this question. So it's been almost eight months now. And one of the things that they promised to do shortly after all of this shit happened was they promised to have uh, listening sessions across the membership. And we've yet, and I've, I've even contacted my local, said, when is this going to happen? D is that... I mean, I know you left, you said you left shortly after. I mean, I'm bringing this up because I'm hoping they, I, I have a sense that they think we have a short memory and it's one thing I don't have. Do you think that they're actually sincere about that? Or is that just a, another, again, another way of trying to just, you know, cover themselves and, and then hope we forget? Well, let me ask you this, Ken, if they had intended to do that, don't you think you would have seen a few <laughs> yeah, listening, I know. listening town halls or whatever? Yeah. yeah. So, you know what? I'm glad that you said you have a long memory. Uh, I was kind of surprised that the controversy went away. I know from speaking with some chapters that there's still some sort of palpable outrage. I would encourage you to ask serious questions and demand answers. In other words, forget about a leadership change right at the top. Let's talk about why has there been zero accountability at the staff level? This is a monumental mistake. The, the biggest mistake in 157 years of that institute, uh, except for the antitrust mess they got in the 90s, I guess. But, you know, there's been no accountability. And so I think if there's a way to affect any sort of change, it has to come from the chapter level and then feed up. And so marshal your resources and say, are you guys in Minnesota feeling what we're feeling in Iowa, what we're feeling in Chicago and in, in Seattle and Boston? And, you know, and then say, well, wait a second, there's some common themes here. And then if you can activate the channels that are already in place, which they have all these silly names for it, the big sibs, the big, the large states, the case network, if you can light the fires that way and they'll go up the chimney, and I guarantee you, they won't know what to do. And then they'll be forced to react. And that that's the best advice I can give all of you. It has been maddening to watch the missteps subsequent to this, like the convention keynote rollout with all, all white men. And then they immediately say, no, 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 no. No, no, no. You don't understand. We have a strategy. We're going to we're going to rule this out in phases. Well, <laughs> OK, then I think you got your phases wrong at the very least. Scott, let's talk about what you are doing now post your AIA career and how, you know, I we are 
very much at Archonnect in the habit of shunning people for asking for free work. But if you have any advice that you would be willing to share with us architects about how we can do better, because we're clearly doing <laughs> shitty right now. <laughs> tell us what you're up. Tell us what you're up to now. Yes. So I, I formed a communication consulting firm immediately. And I, I, it took a little while to get off the ground just because I, I didn't want to promote myself without a, a website and business card, you know, that kind of thing. But And I, I still haven't promoted the fact that I'm open, but it's my job to do everything I did at AIA, including some more maybe hands-on consultation. And then uh, there's things I'm not capable of doing, like like website design and, you know, photography or whatever that some clients may need. But I've, I've already assembled a network of people that can, that can fill those gaps. And so very excited to already have had some, some great successes. But, you know, I recently did a how to work with the media seminar for the Potomac Valley chapter of AI. That's suburban Maryland folks. It wasn't really well attended, but, you know, the response was tremendous. And so if I were to just click off some of the highlights of that, when people, whether you're AI chapter, an individual practitioner or a firm, and you want to get some publicity or generate some press, you can't just say, okay, we got to get in the Washington Business Journal this week because we just, you know, announced a new grand project. That doesn't work like that. Also, that's not news. But you have to do these in a, in a well-orchestrated and thought-out manner. And so some important considerations right out of the gate but what do you actually want to accomplish by getting some press coverage? Is it just a vanity exercise or do you want to get new business or do you want to you know, be more w- well-known in the community? So those are some questions. And then what kind of news outlets make sense? Should it be the design trade publication? Should it be the Wall Street Journal? Should it be somebody in between? Now, are you also prepared for tough questions or critical evaluations of your actual projects? And then is there no such thing as bad PR? Well, I think we've already answered that a few minutes ago. <laughs> You've got to be ready for, for, for all of those sorts of scenarios to play out. And for the most part, journalists aren't here to gotcha. This isn't Mike Wallace showing up, you know, to, to surprise, ambush you. For the most part, if an outlet that covers real estate and construction, you know, they want to tell the good parts of a story, but you got to bring a story to them. It's not just, I designed a new building. So does a lot of people. Well, it's a green building. Again, what else? (laughs) So, you know, if you want to be in that mix, you got to know what the media landscape is like and what they're looking for. And also just understand that reporters are very busy. They're very deadline driven. They react to news. Now, the trade journals, again, they react to news also. They might be more willing to to hear you out on some things, but everybody is a news outlet. And so if you're going to do this and you've never done it before, you got to change your mindset and you have to be proactive. You have to be persistent. And you kind of just have to wait. I mean, that's that's the most frustrating part of my, my world. I basically send emails for a living. And when I don't get responses from people, even, you know, long time contacts, I reporters I've known for a long time sometimes just won't get back to me. It's because they're very busy. Don't take it personally. But you've got to create value. You've got to differentiate yourself. You've got to be a valuable resource. And so sometimes it's good just to position yourself as a knowledgeable expert. If you might see something in the news about controversies around school design, I know one of the issues that AI has been effective at battling is the notion of, um, I don't know what they're exactly called, but basically cookie cutter school design. In, in every state, the school looks like this all over the place. Well, that's just ridiculous. And an architect can tell you why, that there's site selection and all kinds of different elements to it. And then you might be able to say, you know, 
It's more than just a classroom that keeps a roof over a kid's head and keeps them warm or cool, but that daylighting is important because it, it helps with their attention span and their test scores are going to go up and their eyesight's going to be okay. And then there's natural airflow that's going to keep kids from being sick all of the time. And so it's design as problem solving. The same sort of principle applies to healthcare facilities. Most people don't think of an architect when they're sick, but the decisions that they make help patients heal better and faster and they help hospitals get you in and out faster and safer so there's always an economic bottom line so think beyond the mere notion of i designed this building great it looks great what does it do and how does it do it and what what challenges did you come and how'd you overcome them that's when the light bulbs start to go on and the reporter's going to go okay well now all right how did you approach that what was noteworthy about your design do you have any results That way, you're showing how you are trained as a problem solver. And the more you can showcase metrics, that can then substantiate, is this project safer, more efficient, healthier, et cetera, you know, the better chance you are of going to get some some press coverage or at the very least get a reporter to take you seriously and say, this is great, almost, uh, let me get back to you, I'm busy, you know, that kind of thing. So, And then it's okay to have a week or two go by and say, Hey, Fred, you know, we had a good dialogue. Just wondering where things stand. I have some new renderings or we we just got some new photographs. You know, anything you can do to keep a dialogue. Reporters don't mind that at all. I would say that a lot when I do these sessions, there's always a lot of uh, deer in headlights. Like I could never talk to a reporter. And I just want to say, look back in your life when you were middle school, high school, and you had a crush on somebody at the school dance. And so, you know, maybe you think they're checking you out. Maybe they aren't. But if you knew now that nothing drastic is going to happen if, if you just get the Heisman and get told, no, no, thank you. You know, no, nothing's going to be the end of the world. So nothing ventured, nothing gained. The more you can be proactive and, and out there, the more reporters going to take you seriously and respect the fact that you're that you're coming to them with some with some story possibilities. And they might even give you advice on how to better shape the things that you're bringing to them. So. So, Scott, you're pretty much in just what you said there, you pretty much summed up why the I Look Up campaign failed. It was a kind of weak tea idea that was tried once. And when it didn't work, they didn't invest anything else into it. They audibled a little bit. I think the second iteration was better, but not much. And they I think they're now running commercials. I've not seen the latest version, but no matter what, they have no business advertising on television. They could be better spending. They have some talented marketing and, and, and communication folks. They should be putting their resources to videos and banner ads and ways to pop up in you know Pandora streams or any number of things to, to spend their money better. Scott, you know, we love to talk about how architects are horrible at promoting themselves. <laughs> you come from a PR background. Do architects suck at promoting themselves and and if so or regardless what's like one thing that you would that you would recommend that architects need to start doing to do a better job beyond what you I know you've already talked a lot about about ways to to communicate the work and the, and the projects but what do you think we're we're lacking that's most critical it's a mindset so do architects are they good at promoting absolutely there's tons of them i mean there's i'm not even going to name any firms in particular but there's countless firms that are well-oiled machines and i don't just mean gensler som i mean there's folks in in your sort of neck of the woods that are probably very very good at it now it helps to have people that do that for a living right you don't you're not hiring me to to redo your your basement because i just don't know how to do it but the thing that i've that i've noticed that in, in there's a mindset and this goes back decades that oh it's beneath me to advertise my architecture firm Okay, fine. 
fine. If you don't want to buy an advertisement, then there are different ways to do that. For one of them is to find areas, Donna mentioned at the outset, whether you're writing um, policy or design-oriented op-eds around things that are good or bad or things that should be improved upon or avoided in your own community, or maybe you're just an expert in school or hospital design and there's countless trade publications that are dying for good content and you as an architect can contribute in that manner. But you know, I met with a, a prospective client recently opening a, a new a new branch of their firm in a new city and he just was reticent, had never um, tutored the horn and they just feel sort of icky about it. So I would say everybody toots their own horn. Are you going to get that girl to dance with you or not? You know? Um, <laughs> so I don't think there's anything wrong with it, right? So I've got to promote my own business. Brands on television, whether it's, you know, the beer and truck commercials you see during football or really specific organizations like the certified financial planners who try to say that the value of working with a professional so that your finances are in check you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I got that is bizarre to me, the notion that architects don't want to respond. Now, I'm not an architect, Ken, so maybe you can speak to, to where some of that comes from, because I just it's, it's, it's a foreign concept to me. Scott, well, because you're talking about how we need to toot our own horns. What is the name of your company? Tell us your uh, tell us your firm. For sure. It's, it's a short intro name. It's Argo, A-R-G-O, Argo Communications. Excellent. And you've been in business for yeah, basically a couple months. Yeah, a couple <laughs> a few months. months and, yeah, uh, since yeah. the Monday after the uh, AIA. Since right? the Monday yeah, after exactly. the. <laughs> I needed to decompress a bit, but the web address is argoforward.com. And so I'm, I'm happy to speak with anybody that um, has some questions or actually wants to do some work or just wants to get a lay of the land. It's been fun. It's something I, I'm glad I didn't do it several years ago. This has been, I needed to have this sort of point and, and now it's just, it's been great. It's, I think I'm just scratching the surface for uh, the potential and, and the needs out there and the response has been tremendous so far. So Scott, what are you reading and what are you listening to? I had just been on my honeymoon and I planned to read a couple of Congratulations. books. Congratulations. Why, thank you. Where'd you go? Uh, I went to Key West because we, well, my wife and I had planned to go to Portugal and Spain, but because of, of this situation and trying to get a trying to get a business off the ground, we both thought that probably wasn't the best time. So we would table that. So uh, I can answer both questions at once. I bought a book that I'm halfway through that I meant to get to and I didn't. By the way, wow, symbolically, this, this works on many levels. So are you all familiar with the... Uh, a British band from 80s and 90s New Order. Of course. Of course. <laughs> of course. One of my all-time favorites. Their bass player wrote a book about the world-famous nightclub in Manchester, England called The Hacienda. And the subtitle is How Not to Run a Club. Oh, <laughs> nice. It says the inside story of Britain's most notorious nightclub. Uh, it was initially funded with New Order record sales profits, which is just a recipe for disaster. But it was very famous. Uh, and all the my favorite music actually comes from Manchester. And I, I, I don't even want to touch on the, the mess that happened the other day because I'm not yeah. you know, qualified to speak on that. But I'm a big fan of all the bands, the Smiths, the Stone Roses, Oasis, et cetera, that came out of Manchester. That That's, that's some of my favorite stuff. And then I also stumbled upon a book at a record store called is blown away. The Rolling Stones and the death of the 60s. Basically how Altamont 
um, and that tragedy mm-hmm. that was was the absolute knockout blow for for the hippie free love movement of the sixties and how it had gotten so ugly. So I'm happy through both of them. I need to I need to pick one and, and finish. So <laughs> that's where we are. Welcome back from a honeymoon, and I hope it was fabulous. It's been really fun talking with you. Thank you so much for joining. I'm us. sure I'm going to get some hate mail. Oh, but that's fine. okay. It was good. You know, it's honest. Yeah. I mean, well, we're often hard on the AIA, but we're hard on the AIA because we need to be. Yeah, we want it to be better. You got to hold their feet to the fire. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's tough love. Again, they mean well. They do some things really well. They do a lot of things really poorly. Hold their feet. Ken, get the get get your people <laughs> activated and then work up the chimney with a with a good roasting bit of flames and I bet I, I hope that there's some um there's some accountability and then some some good structural changes that are needed. So Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott. I hope we can have you back. You were uh, awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks to Scott for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week.